Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do, thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine, yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 34 of the Corona Diaries. And I am joined on screen, as always, by Mr. Steve H, looking resplendent this morning in that sure uh, hoodie that you seem to like to wear. I spotted that. I was just trying to get on your good side. Yeah. That was I gave you that as a gift years ago, didn't I? I must bet that. How old's that? Eight, ten years old? Yeah. Well, I'm funny with clothes. You know, I, I, I sort of develop an affection for old stuff over right. a period of time and then wear it, you know, in preference to new stuff. Must be my age. Okay. I've got a pair of slippers here. Anyway, carry on. Well, we, we said last, because we're going to get straight into it and there's a reason we're going to get straight into it. Our normal 10-minute preamble is not going to happen. We're going to be on it this morning. And we said last week we'd do a bit of a, a special to talk about the Hogarth Barbieri project. Um, now, it's become very, very special because for the first time ever in a TCD recording, I'm looking at two people on screen and the other person I'm looking at on screen is Mr Richard Barbieri. So, Richard, good morning. Morning. This is an absolute pleasure. This is very unexpected. Uh, we haven't dragged you up, have we? Well, I had to be up at 8.30 to attend to the broken boiler. A plumber was calling, so... Um, yeah, I'm up and awake and, yeah. Did did the plumber make it? Because they are notorious. He made it. Oh, right. Dead on 8.30? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's restoring the faith that the nation has in plumbers then. Mm. <laughs> we've, we've, got, we've got the magic together. We've got the band back together in the room. Uh, and I, I guess my first question's got to be, and it's got to go to Rich, really. We've had a... We've had a Steve has told us um, about how your arm was twisted to originally get involved in the ICG, the Ice Cream Genius Project, but can you give us your take on that? Yeah, it wasn't twisted. Um, I remember meeting Steve for the first time along with Stephen Wilson, and I think the the plan was to have Stephen Wilson produce um, Steve's solo album. Um, So I came along at the uh, request of Steve H, um, because I think he wanted me involved. And so, yeah, that was the first time I met him. And um, I'm really up for playing, and it's very rare, but if people ask me to do what I do on their albums, then I'm really happy and excited to do it. It rarely happens. You know, I'm not a session guy. I, I can't kind of... Just go, there's no point to me being a session guy. Um, so it just started from there, really. And we, we hit it off very quickly. And um, Steve knew a bit about my, my background and, and uh, the stuff with Japan. So, yeah, that's how it happened. And that, that whole process, so the band that came together, I mean, you just said it was a very easy you know, working relationship, but it was it was a group of people who I understand had never worked together before. Is that right? Yes. I mean, the, during the recording, it wasn't a band. It was yeah, a yeah, solo yeah. album, and we're just musicians coming in, doing our thing. Um, but there was a really nice vibe uh, with the group of people that were working there in the studio. And um, I guess at the point Steve decided to take it on the road, it made sense to use the people who were involved in the album. And you you said something there just about you're not a session guy. Mm. Um, so you you like you know if somebody asks you to come and get involved in a project and do what you do, mm. and was that very much how it worked with everybody in that space? Uh, and you know, and H, if you want to jump in at this point as well, uh, was it about collecting people together and just letting them do their thing with a view that it it it, it would probably morph into something? 
Yeah, I, I was I was able, you know, it being a solo album and everything, I was able to handpick uh, who got involved in it. I was able to, you know, sort of design um, who had a creative input on it. And so I chose I chose Clem because I thought he'd introduce some sort of punk energy to it because, you know, I'm the lead singer of Marillion and so I didn't want to make an album that sounded anything like that, you know. Um, I wasn't interested in selling another prog album to the fan base, man. I, I wanted to go, bam, you know, over the other side. Meanwhile, on the other side of whatever the universe is this... Um, so I chose Clem because I, cause I thought he'd bring some punk energy to it. Um, Craig Leon, the producer, I chose because he was about the last person on earth you'd expect to do it as well. You know, he'd worked with Bob Marley and, and, and sort of New York indie bands. Um, and then I had, uh, I was fortunate to to kind of have a route to meet Richard via Steve Wilson, and being a huge fan of what what he does, um, I, I I thought it'd be wonderful to have those <coughs> those sonic sonic landscapes, you know, and those those funny little clunky noises that he does, and those neep noises that he does. I thought it'd be great to have them. I, I wasn't expecting the elephant that came as a surprise, but but it was a good thing when it happened. It was the um, elephant in the room. <laughs> it, it certainly was. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it was, it was a chance to get people in who I, I, I really admired, you know, almost like my own heroes. But when, when, we went, when we went and did the H-Band tour, some nights I used to just look over my shoulder and go, me look at my band how the hell did i put this together you know how did this happen um so it was an ex really exciting to work with all of the musicians i don't think i bossed them about much um in fact i think sometimes certain members of the band would express slight frustration i wasn't giving them a brief i was trying to let them arrive at what it had become you know, I was trying to get... Because there's no point in bringing an, an artist into your creative process who you admire, who you admire because you've heard them doing what they do and then tell them to do something else. That's insane. Um, so I was always trying to let everybody run with it and feel where it, where it might go. I mean, also Craig, the producer... You know, you've got to listen to them as well. Um, but I think Richard came in on the understanding that he would do his thing, you know, whatever, you know, and feel his way into it. And uh, I thought it worked really well. Uh, then we went out on the road. Maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because you, you want to talk about the album. But, but we had a really good relationship on the road. Um and we became friends on the tour bus, really, from having had a lot of long conversations in the back lounge at night. Um, and so that that sort of solidified the possibility of a of, of us making a, a a collaborative album in the future, which is how Not the Weapon came together. Mm. And that that does talk to again back to what what Richard said about being able to you know everybody's fingerprints were on the album if that makes sense that there's that the, the the individuality of those artists was was expressed and everybody and everybody through that process added the thing that you know that was unique to them um what about the relationship with with dave because again um you know steve h has talked a lot about um about that sort of the the, the three-way thing between the three of you you know that you, Dave Greggs, and and were often, you know, really instrumental in some of the arrangements for for that. Did you did you did you find working with Dave Greggs um, something instant, Rich? Yeah, um, he's an incredibly um, tasteful and inventive guitarist. Mm. 
My natural inclination isn't always towards guitars when I'm making music. And it, it, having been in lots of, well, bands with pretty loud guitars, you're always kind of trying to find a space. And, and with, with Dave, I just felt that he listens. He listens to everything and he places the notes, the chords, the melodies, where they work the best. And he kind of comes at it from a producer point of view, I think, yeah. which, which I do as well. Um, when I'm going to do an overdub, I don't think this is my chance to do this. I listen to the track, I listen to the lyrics, I, I try to get the whole vibe, and then I search for the space. And I won't play if it's not right, you know. And mm. I just try to find sonically, uh, frequency-wise, and a space within the spectrum where I can place something and where in context it will elevate the piece further. And I think that's what Dave does. And you're right, that's, I mean, as a guitarist, as somebody who plays guitar, I don't class myself as a guitarist, but somebody who plays guitar, that's fairly unusual because mm. we because we like to get a, a big sound that covers this amount of frequency range and play it as loud as we possibly yeah. can. Yeah, in fact, David, a uh, guitarist called David Rhodes, who, who plays mainly with Peter Gabriel, but also with Talk Talk, was similar, not similar guitarist, but similar in, in that approach. He would mm. find the right part, the right riff, the right sound, great attention to detail. He wasn't, you know, a guitarist like a sling a guitar and start playing these blues licks and just won't shut up. You know, it was just perfectly tasteful. Yeah, and I get that because his work with 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 Gabriel is is very understated, and it, yeah. and it, it dovetails into the whole project beautifully. He, he actually was Japan's guitarist on the uh, second to the last tour. That must have been an absolute joy to have played with him. Yeah, yeah, it was a joy for him to play with us. <laughs> Did he cut your hair at all? Have I? No, did he? Because I heard a rumour from a truck driver, actually, that, that um, on that Peter Gabriel tour, um, one of those, the up, up, upside down one, he used to cut everybody's hair. Um, no, you know, ours. He had a little salon, salon, so I'm just wondering if, he, if he'd no. snipped at you at all. No. No, we went to a Swiss salon in Mayfair. <laughs> <laughs> in your kimono. <laughs> Shuffled in, <laughs> have his nails done. <laughs> so, we can, um, <laughs> try and bring it back, but don't worry about it. Yeah. So, so, so that's so that's interesting because there's 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 this thing going on where you're you're everything's morphing together quite nicely. Everybody's leaving space for each other and working in each other each other's spaces and being, which is. And, Obviously, hugely helpful when you, I guess, you're producing a piece of music. So, how does that dynamic change then when, when you introduce something like Aziz into the mix to go out and play it live? Um, well, I guess Steve would answer that. But from my perspective, I think it was a case of throwing in a completely different guitarist in contrast to Dave, but just as amazing. I mean, Aziz is very much. Um, his personality comes through. Um, oh, I'm sure and obviously all the flavours because of his background. Um, that's that's in everything he does. Um, and he, he lights up things with this amazing, amazing kind of melodies and, and flourishes and um, it was it was a perfect contrast, and I think they naturally knew which parts each mm. one would take. It just fell into place from where I was anyway on stage. Because mm. he is he is incredible. I mean, I've um, I sat with him one afternoon, and he was just messing about on a guitar. And he can he can make a guitar sound like he's using a wah pedal without a wah pedal. He can make a guitar sound like a sitar. It's just and not mimic it. I mean, actually fool you into thinking it it's you know it's, it's his yeah. ability to do that's astonishing he's also totally undisciplined yeah Whereas i'd agree with that dave, as well dave would work out the parts have everything prepared aziz would still be working out the pedal board and, and <laughs> yeah. phoning manufacturers mm. saying oh if i could just get this pedal then i could do this part so aziz is more difficult to produce i would think um, but you just get the genius at the end of it. 
And we'll come back to Aziz in a bit because he ended up laying down some guitar for the Arclight um, tracks, didn't he? There's some mm. of Aziz's work on that, so we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. So ICG's there, you've been involved in, in the process, um, then, then that's been out on the road, and there's been a couple of variations of that, but as you've just said, Ace, that's where the friendship really kind of got locked in. When was the first whispers of doing something else? I honestly haven't a clue. Can you remember when we first sort of... Yeah, I think every so often, you know, you or, or I would say, it'd be nice to write a bit of music together. Um, I was already a big fan of your lyrics and and the voice, of course, but... But the lyrics for me were um, incredible. Uh, I think you're one of the best lyricists out there. Um, and that kind of started when Steve Wilson played me a Marillion album. Um, it was Afraid of Sunlight. And prior to that, I'd only heard the Marillion sort of, of from the 80s, which I really didn't like. Um, and hearing that, I thought, wow, this is, really wasn't what I was expecting. And... Um, I love the vocals and I love the lyrics. And as we became, you know, closer friends, it just thought, yeah, this could this could be we could do something interesting, something different. Something that, you know, for Steve was 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 a real break from from Marillion. And for me, I'm not a songwriter. I I just write music. And it, I thought it'd be interesting to see what he would do with, with that. Mm. In many ways, I had the same uh, dilemma that um, Richard was talking about. Not the dilemma, but but that um, I tend to be somebody who listens to music before I, before I get involved in it as well. I don't just splurge all over it. Um, and a lot of what Richard sent to me um, that I really, really enjoyed, that my dilemma was how can I not make this worse? You know, how can I not? So I was finding I had to tiptoe around the, into in, into the sonic spaces as well, in order not to um, just mess it up, really. Because uh, r what Richard was sending me was really visual and really beautiful, and needed the space. I mean, it was a slight frustration I had when I when I used to listen to the Porcupine Tree. I never thought Richard had enough room within that big block of sound, you know. Um, I kind of wished the rest of them had shut up a bit. <laughs> uh, you know, in the nicest possible way, with respect and all of that to, to who they are and what they've achieved. But um, so I tend to go the other way. You know, I don't. I don't want to make. If I, if I hear something's really beautiful, I, I think, how can this be improved upon? Uh, not sure it can. You know, stay out the way. So sometimes I just whisper. You know, or, or, or on, on, and and I think that had a lot to do with the the vocal approach on not the weapon. I was sometimes really trying to stay out the way. I remember when yeah. I first heard the. In the uh, Richard sketch for uh, what became um, um, lifting the lid. Is that what it's called? Lock, but, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just not really wanting to fill any space because it was lovely. So I, I was trying to stay out of the way all the t all, all the time and and find find the right words which would 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 be um, you know which would re would resonate pictorially with what I was hearing. And Rich, that I suppose that's got to help or that's got to... I mean, the chance of a project really working out, if 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 you've got that kind of thought and that kind of empathy and between the two of you before you start, that's got to, that's got to really help. Yeah. Um, yeah, what made it interesting was that Steve wasn't coming at it like a, a conventional vocalist. As he says, he, he, was, he was kind of being minimal in his approach and looking for the spaces, much the way that I work as well. Another um, instrument in the soundscape. Yeah, exactly. And as I said before, I don't, I don't write songs. My 
my success rate for writing something that becomes a song is about one in 12. And I think there's one on this album which worked in a more conventional uh, song structure, which is only... Only love, love will make, make you free. Free, which kind of was my music that didn't change that much. And it had a verse, a bridge, a middle eight, mm. a chorus, and it, and it scanned out that way. But for, for the rest of the time, it, it, you know, it was a case of Steve making something of it, mm. producing sections. And it, I would imagine it's for, for his fans, it's more of a departure than it would be for people who like my music because I, I kind of was doing what I do. Mm. Whereas I think Steve really had to look at it in a different way. Yeah, and, my uh, approach to that was yeah. here's, some, here's a complete other side of, of, what, of what I do. Mm. Take it or leave it. If you don't like yeah. it, never mind. You know, um, but, I, you know, I'm really proud of it. Here it is. And uh, so some people have been blown away by it. Some of, you know, I get mails from from Marillion fans just because it's one of the one of the most incredible albums I've ever heard, you know, and then I, I guess a whole load load more of them don't get it at all. But that's mm. fine. It was never never meant to be a uh, an attempt to feed the fan base. I think I think if you look um if you take those of us that, you know, that were blown away by Afraid of Sunlight, that were blown away by Ice Cream Genius, that are, 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 then then this, I'm not saying this is an extension of that, but this wasn't something that then came as a complete shock. Um, and so I think that's why you've got a lot of people who like that side of Marillion and the, and the other bits that you've done that have, have really taken to it. I mean, I had a, had a message through from one of the uh, one of the patrons, Rich Hendricks, um, who says, my comment is that Not the Weapon But the Hand really grabbed me at a deep, deep level. I was surprised by the extent to which it affected me. It's one of my top three favourite albums of all time. Uh, it even prompted me to get my first tattoo with lyrics from Only Love Will Make You Free on my left inside forearm. So clearly it's affected Rich. Uh, and, and Rich is somebody that we know through the groups and he's a, you know, he's a staunch fan, but it, it, it really touched him in a, in, you know... I mean, he goes on to say thank you for... for Thank you so much for such a treasured and valuable gift um, of this collaboration of two of my favourite artists. So that is a, I mean, that's no, that's a, amazing. Do we know what line? I'm looking at the lyrics. And I, do you know what? I'll pretty find, powerful I'll, lines in there. I'll find and, out. I'll find out. I'm sure. I'm sure he will tell us. I'm sure he will tell us. Um, so, but he did have a question, which was, did all the music um, come at the same time or in stages? And I think he also, by that means for both the album and the Art Light EP. So did the album come in one block? Did it come in, in stages? Did it all come around the same time? Is Art Light a, to a certain extent, an extension of the same sessions? And, it, and if, if so, did you pick different tracks to go on different releases? No, I, Art Light came uh, later and was, was a separate thing. I think it was just circumstances at the time didn't allow for us to concentrate fully enough to make another album and probably weren't ready by that time to make another album. But there were some pieces that I liked and I, I sent through to Steve. Um, and we just thought it's got the makings of a nice little EP. Um, sometimes that's the way to, to go is to, you know, don't push for an album if it's not the right time and if the material isn't quite right. Um, just use what is right and, and make it an, an EP. Mm. So that happened. Um, as to the, the, the main album, yeah, it was a case of me sending the music to Steve. Steve would work on it and then quite, um, well, decisively make these edits across the whole, um, across the whole piece as an example of how he thought this arrangement could work and because he had ideas and obviously I didn't know those ideas. So my arrangement's not quite right. So he's chopping things around and then I had to recreate that, which was a bit difficult for me at the time. So um, that, that took a little while, but once we got into that way of working and understanding, um, it's actually 
quite a logical way to do it. It was like you know, tes- it was like tennis. <clears throat> we didn't actually mm. spend a lot lot of time together. You know, Richard would send me something. I would drive around for weeks just just listening to it in the car um, and soaking it up, you know, and, and trying to get a feeling off it and, and, you know, humming little tunes to myself while I was driving around maybe or just thinking if there was anything that I wanted to express that that, that, that music was taking me to or whether I'd got any lyrics on the shelf that that, that would feel right for it. And then, um, yeah, I'd get stuck in with the um, with the the virtual scissors and chop it into a shape that would make sense for me. Uh, make a, a stereo of that and an MP3 and bat it back to Richard in London and go, "What about this?" You know, whereupon he would go, "Oh my God, I've got to now edit the entire multi-track <laughs> into this <laughs> shape." Um, which he would do, you know, and then and then he bat it back to me again. And it, by the time it came back, it would feel slightly different. Um, and we and, and we would get together. Um, he made made little jaunts on a train out to the countryside, uh, where he was traumatized by people popping round with you know village gifts, um, which they don't do in London. Um, so that. That implies a contract. And <laughs> <laughs> you can't accept gifts because then you're, you're, you're theirs forever and you're going to have to, you know, be at their behest any time. Village life is quite scary. That is the greatest way I've ever heard of rejecting an unwanted gift. It implies a contract. Come Christmas morning, if I don't like something I open, I'm going to refuse it on the basis that it, it, you know, it suggests a contract has been formed. Mm. Thanks for that. It's like taking in an advance from the record label. (laughs) (laughs) Just take your own present back and say you're not having it. I'm sorry, I wasn't happy with this one. I had two questions to ask, but you've just kind of answered one of them. So it wasn't actually, you weren't the precursors for a COVID way of working. You did actually get together a bit through the project. So that was, Mm. that was, that was the question I was going to ask. But I've got one final question before we, before we wrap up, because time's a little bit against us. Um, what about anything in the future then? Because clearly well, there's a there's a lot of relationship hmm. going on here, and, and hmm. there's a lot of warmth. So what about what about something new? Well, over over the years that followed, we, you know, occasionally I've sent stuff over, and Steve's been working on things. And oh, at one stage we had about six or seven pieces, and then I think we both lost interest in in half of those, but. I started reworking three of the pieces uh, and I, I got an enthusiasm back for them. They sounded quite fresh to me. And then I, I sent them again to Steve and I think this time around he felt something as well. I said, hang on, there's something happening there. That's, that's pretty good. So, yeah, I think we're, we're, we're kind of getting there slowly. We haven't made a concerted effort, um, but... I'd be very surprised if we don't uh, make another album at some point. Yeah. So would cool. I. I think we're, we're kind of halfway. We've got one leg in it already. It's just mm. finding the the time and the um, the energy and the planets aligning to to do a bit more. Mm. Right, well, we'll wrap it there and we'll head off into a bit of diary as we as we tiptoe into 1994 for the first time and the first bits of support around uh, around the Brave launch and what have you. Uh, Richard, thank you for that. It's been an absolute joy. Thank um, you, yeah. It's I been a joy to it. share the screen with an extra person on a Monday morning, to, yeah. to, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but it's been a joy to meet you. And would you come back? Would you? Could we pick this up at a later point in time? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing Wonderful. else to do. You can come back and deny <laughs> everything you've just said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that's that's cool. And I will uh, will segue uh, left into a bit of diary. Okay. All right. Mr. Cheers, Bray, Steve. Thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Rich, that was brilliant. Thank you very much for that. S- speak to you soon. Sunday, 2nd of January. Home, racket club. Went for a haircut. 
it was the only time they could do it. I'm going away for five days, so it had to be today. Got home at one to domestic chaos. Sue, Sophie and Nile had taken the Christmas tree down. The vacuum cleaner had jammed and Nile was screaming. I had furniture to rearrange, the hi-fi to reconnect, the tree to dispose of, the decorations to pack away into the loft and have lunch amid the children, one screaming and one making jewellery on the kitchen table before leaving for the record club to rehearse acoustic versions of four songs from the Brave album. Arrived at the studio and wished Happy New Year to Steve, Mark and Pete. Runaway works well. Made Again is good but hard to sing, probably because it's the song I've sung least during the album proper. Lap of Luxury was a struggle, but it's getting better. And The Hollow Man will be fine, if I remember the piano part. Got home in time to bath the kids, made myself a curry, I watched a bit of TV before starting to pack for the journey tomorrow. I'm being picked up at 8.30 so I could do with a good night's sleep. No such luck. Sophie appears at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's something making scary noises in my room. And then Niall wakes at 6.30. Monday, 3rd of January. Home, Paris. The alarm went off at 7.45. I'd been awake at 7.30, but was sound asleep again at 7.45. Got up, went downstairs and finished packing. Everyone else got up too, so I said my goodbyes and promised Hargreaves a present. The ride to Heathrow was uneventful. The traffic was good as it was a bank holiday, and I chatted to the driver, Chris, who managed to persuade his girlfriend not to go to Canada. Met up with John and Mark at Terminal 4, checked in and spent an hour in the club lounge before boarding BA 308 to Paris. The captain's preliminary welcome was the wittiest I've ever heard. I could see him grinning over his shoulder as he spoke. What a shame they're not all like him. These days these machines fly themselves anyway, so the least they could do is spread a little jollity about the place. The plane wasn't full, so it was a pleasant, relaxed and short flight. I spent most of it writing this diary. There's a joke currently circulating the airlines. The ideal flight crew of a modern airliner consists of a captain and a dog. The captain's there to talk to the passengers and the dog's there to growl at him if he tries to touch anything. We were met by Lawrence from EMI France who accompanied us to the Hotel California. In the bar I sampled a 1933 Glen Grant single malt whiskey with Mark, which was 50 quid a shot. EMI were paying, so we thought, what the hell, we're never likely to taste something like this again, and shared one. It was noticeably smoother than the usual stuff, but I'll not get into the habit. Did a couple of cable TV interviews and later went to the Museum of Ancient Artifacts overlooking the Seine at the Eiffel Tower where EMI had played the album to their sales force. There are four other playbacks planned in the regions of France. They seem to be making the effort. Later on, Marc and I went to Les Bandouches with Olivier, Holly and Alex from Rondor, my song publisher. It was nice to have a wander round. Europeans played Le Bandouche on Jeff's birthday back in 1982. Happy memories, even if I did get into a bit of a scrap with a cab driver afterwards. He drove me round Paris to run up the meter. I spotted it and refused to pay, so he took my bag. So I thumped him. Then he threatened me with a lead cosh which he produced from under the seat. So I paid him. Had a couple of caipirinhas and a couple of beers, and I stayed up much too late. John Arneson left to go to L.A. only 30 minutes after we went to bed. Tuesday, 4th of January, Paris, Amsterdam. Woke up at 9.30 with a hangover. Oh dear. I'd lost my room key by now, but first things first. Struggled through the first interview with Isabel, who had brought me a copy of Les Occidentaux, which was produced by Callum Malcolm. He produces my favourite band, The Blue Nile, and I've been trying to get a copy for a while. 
After the first interview, I began to feel human again, although Jack was definitely suffering for the whole day. Holly took us to lunch at Val d'Isere, where I had grilled sole. More promo and photographs with Tania and Sophie Prevost and Laurence, and more trouble with room keys, then off to the airport to fly to Amsterdam. Met at Schiphol by Rondor's Yvonne Ellenbass, who once again had forsaken her free time to look after us. Checked in at the American Hotel, and Yvonne took us out for dinner. We weren't at our best after the heavy night out in Paris, so we had an early night. Wednesday, 5th of January. Amsterdam to Hilversum. We were picked up by Derek, or Dirk, around 11 o'clock and driven to the airport to pick up Steve R and Pete T, who both seemed well. And then we travelled to Hilversum to the radio station, where we recorded acoustic tracks for Holland. It seemed to go okay. We recorded Runaway, Made Again and The Hollow Man, Cover My Eyes on Piano and Voice. I did a couple of interviews there during the afternoon and we returned to the American Hotel in Amsterdam around 6.30. One more interview and photo, and then, after an impromptu video message for the Web Holland, we went out to dinner with EMI. Mexican. Thursday, 6th of January. Amsterdam, Brussels. I was roused at 9.30 by Brenda from EMI to start interviews at 10 o'clock. Today turned out to be non-stop. There were journalists literally queuing up to speak to us and they all seemed insistent on speaking to me. Consequently, I didn't even stop for lunch. I managed to grab something in the restaurant on the condition that I carry on an interview with Mark as I ate. By now I'd got it down to an art and I feel that at least I was talking a lot of sense and justifying the album to the good people of the press in no uncertain terms. I'd come a long way since the first uneasy and unfocused thoughts in the hotel bar in Paris. The reaction to the album seems excited and exciting from both the record company and most of the journalists. My last interview of the day ended at five, so I packed and checked out, leaving by limo to drive to Brussels with Jack at around 5.15. During the journey, we chatted about the performance aspects of the forthcoming Brave shows, and hatched the idea of the use of wigs to change my persona and sex during the show. Not sex during the show, change my sex during the show. We arrived at around 7.15 at the Brussels Sheraton, where we were greeted by Sylvie, who checked us in and then took us out to dinner. Japanese. We went on to a spooky little bar, and Jack made wax models from the candles, while I listened to Jesus' blood, Robert Fripp, and handle. Friday, 7th of January, Brussels home. The alarm call came at 10.30. It was Sylvie back at the hotel to take us to the EMI office where we were to meet and greet the staff. There was a little playback to the sales force, all men, and I made a short speech to try and explain what we were trying to achieve artistically. They took photographs with us and then Sylvie took us back to the Sheraton for the day's promotion. We had a brief lunch with EMI's Mark and Irwin, head of marketing. Then more interviews, a trip out to the radio station and back to the Sheraton, room 2606, to pack, moan about MTV and have a farewell drink before Sylvie took us to Brussels airport for the trip home. Wandered aimlessly around the airport admired tin-tin paperweights in the duty-free, and flew home. The air stewardesses were going on about Richard Gere opening the Harrods sale and Al Fayed saying he'd asked to see the hamsters in the pet department. It was in the evening standard. Cindy Crawford pulled out of the trip at the last minute, so maybe he was just winding her up. Got home around ten o'clock. Everyone's fine. Monday... 21st of February, Liverpool to Bristol. Left Liverpool at 10 for the long drive down the M6 to the Severn Bridge. Arrived late at the services, picked up Dennis O'Regan and his assistant, Sarah, en route to the strip of land beneath the structure I have laid claim to. 
we were to have our photograph taken with the Severn Bridge sprawling across the sky above us. Dennis was his usual pleasant and easy self, and all seemed to go okay. He ruined a pair of black suede shoes in the river mud. We were then taken to the waterside at Bristol for interviews at some American diner, and on to Cardiff, arriving early evening. It was the International Hotel. International means that the clock also tells you the time in Paris. But you still can't get a club sandwich after ten o'clock at night. I went to bed hungry, but I knew what time it was in Paris. Tuesday, 22nd of February. Cardiff, St David's Hall. Woke up too late for breakfast. Decided against trying to communicate with the hotel staff on the basis of last night's experience and went to St David's Hall at the end of the street. The weather was cold and raining, really cold actually, and I couldn't find a way into the venue. Eventually gained entry, had a bite to eat and catering, consumed several coffees and opened a pink letter which had arrived in the production office addressed to me, care of St David's Hall. It seemed to have been written by someone slightly more disturbed than Charles Manson. There were a number of references to, quote, your whore queen and goose-stepping nits marching across your infested scalp, etc. It was most definitely the real thing. It was postmarked Bath and remains, without doubt, the most peculiar letter I have ever read. I was going to save it and keep it as a souvenir, but it went missing during the day. Soundcheck was hell. The keyboard computer was crashing every two minutes. The record company were all coming out in force tonight to see the show. Why don't they wait until we know what we're doing? I was too wired to talk to anyone before the show. I mentioned to Tim Brickus, our production manager, that, bearing in mind the pink letter, I'd like a particularly close eye kept on me tonight. To our great relief, it all went well. The sold-out audience were quiet for most of the show. I remember they did this last time, but went spare towards the end. Kathy, Sandra and Amanda said they enjoyed it immensely, especially Sandra, who seemed almost overwhelmed. JFC, the MD of EMI, was not so complimentary and seemed distant. Maybe he's preparing himself for a tough decision. We went back to the hotel, had a drink and jumped on the crew bus overnight to Norwich. Wednesday, 23rd of February, Norwich University. Arrived in Norwich overnight, climbed out of the bus and into a van with the runner who took me to the hotel via the whole of Norwich several times. Checked into the hotel Norwich, which didn't look like much from the outside or the inside, but more than compensated by having sunbeds, sauna, jacuzzi and swimming pool all staffed by friendly chaps and gals. Did all of that and snoozed for the rest of the day. Touring is rigorous, but I do get chance to really relax and spoil myself on days like these. Arrived at the soundcheck, which took ages, more keyboard hell. The show went much as expected. This was a university crowd, so a good 50% probably weren't fans. The whole of the brave stuff was met with quiet astonishment. It was another storage heater audience. They all came to life in the encores, and by the end of the evening, we had them with us. We feel a much greater sense of achievement when this happens. Showered up at the show. Someone handed in my eye pencil afterwards. They must have had an attack of guilt. How sweet. Ate my loadout cheese and pickle sandwich and went to bed. And we're back. Um, and that's the first section of diary from 1994. And we'll come on to that in a second. But I'm going to have to start with, oh, my God, Richard Barbieri in the room. Uh, yes, he has that effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as his ease because, you know, <laughs> the fact that he, he, he turned, you know, he, he, if, if Aziz turns up on the right day at the right time, everybody goes into shock. Right there. <laughs> Right. No, it's always a it's always a pleasure to have either of them in the room, and 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 lovely to hear from 
from Richard. Well, I'm, I'm conscious we didn't get back to talking about Aziz's contribution to Arclight. So, uh, but I think, as Richard kindly said, he will come back on. So I think perhaps... Do you know what? I think there's an opportunity for all four of us to get together. Wouldn't that be... If we could make that work, wouldn't that be a thing? So maybe maybe that's a new what, year with thing. What, with you mean? Or with yeah. Dave? Well, we, well, we shouldn't both. exclude Dave, whatever no. we do. Oh, he's turning into a family quiz at this rate. Yeah, no, it will, will be. be. You won't, nobody will get a word in anyway. My, my Dave's quite, you know, he's quite, um, he he probably will will wait until somebody asks him to speak before he sallies forth, unlike my good self. If if Dave is waiting for the sonic space in this podcast, he's never going to get no, a word in, is he? No. And if we all wait, for, I mean, waiting for Aziz to turn up in, in a Zoom <laughs> meeting will be uh, a trip down memory lane. <laughs> uh, well, we'll work on this for the new year. But what a what a what a joy to have Richard involved, and and in you know, nice little treat that. Didn't expect that after getting the little WhatsApp ping from you last night. So it was. Uh, that was cool. Yeah, I, I, I was chuffed that he wanted to, that he was up for, for being questioned. It's great. Mm. And, and it sort of opens up a precedent going forward for the occasional guest contributor, doesn't it? Well, I, th- I think we should. I mean, we, we were a bit better behaved than normal, so that's the bit we're going to struggle with. But, but I, I think in terms of altering the, the feel of the thing, I think it's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant idea. Um, we need to talk a little bit about Christmas because um, we've had a little chat and we're going to take a week off for Christmas, aren't we? How selfish. I know, it's, I know, I know. Well, we, we've, got, we've got families that might not be happy if we, if we sit down to record on Christmas Eve. Um, so um, they've been very patient with us so far. Um, so um, we, we said we'd take a week off. So this is... This is chapter 34, so if you're... This is, I think, f- probably 14th of December, I think this one goes out, a bit mm-hmm. earlier if you're a purple. And then we'll do chapter 35, so you'll get one on the 21st of December, um, but you won't mm. get one uh, just after Christmas on the, I guess, what will be the 28th. So you'll get one then in the new year. So we're giving you advance warning. We've done 30-odd, and we've been we've been on schedule every time. Shocking. So... I think uh, I think I think we're allowed a a little, a little bit of a break. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got we've got to stay stay married. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think that would be a good. I mean, the fact of the matter is, we both we we're both just going to be off our tits on Bristol cream. So I certainly will be. I'll be down the back of the sofa with a couple of old ladies. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Dick Emery sketch. <laughs> Being being taught to crochet or something <laughs> <laughs> unsuccessfully. <laughs> oh, bring us back a tea cosy. <laughs> um, so, so we give you advance warning. We'll probably remind you next week, but there won't be one. It's not so. Channel thirty, so chapter thirty six will be your new year. Will be the new year. So, so, so that's the first thing that we need to uh, that we need to kind of tell you about. And then we we need to remind you about the live stream. Because this will be our last chance to tell you about the live stream before it, before it happens. So, uh, how's that going? All still going well? All, all go well. The preparations are going well. If you don't count me, um, they're terrific. Um, it's all coming together. Uh, it's all lined up. Um, I just have to decide what what to do, or decide th- that I'm deliberately not going to decide what to do. Uh, I think you should do that. <laughs> that, it's easy for you to say. You, <laughs> you, nobody would be pointing a bloody camera at you. Um, so I, I should at least, at least have a some kind of framework and maybe a couple of little surprises. Because with every H natural gig, I try and do something that I've not done before or any of the others um, with various levels of success. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Phil Brown sometimes advises me against. It. <laughs> we were in. I tell you, we were in Warsaw, and I decided to do going to a, going to a town by Rufus Wainwright, and then, and I kept rehearsing it, and it was a shambles. And it was it was you know, and I, I ran through about three times in the sound check, and Phil said, "You're not going to do that song tonight, yeah, because it's really really rubbish." And I, so and I, so I started with it out of <laughs> out of devilment. <laughs> 
and it was an utter disaster. I didn't recover <laughs> at any point during the show. So, <laughs> so, uh. so you, you, you know, it's nice to take risks, but sometimes it's also nice to know what you're doing. Well, I'm, I'm going to add my recommendations, but I've got the advantage that I can actually do them on air to your face. So I've got two recommendations right. for you. It's okay. not the uh, strange engine and the invisible man. Is it? <laughs> no, no, it's not. They're not. Yeah. They're not actually Marillion tunes. Tiny, tiny so I'm going to give you two cover recommendations, and one of them is going to be a Christmas tune, uh, and it's not Fairy Tale of New York. Though that would be a good recommendation. Um, um, my favourite Christmas tune of all time is "I Believe in Father Christmas" by Greg Lake. So I'm going to throw that in as no my chance. Christmas record recommendation <laughs> carry on um uh, th- thanks for thanks for considering that uh for such a period and my other one is tom trabert's blues by um tom waits wow i'll have to listen to that i have no idea which i think you could do because it's got that repeating part that goes through it um because right. it's the one with the waltzing matilda vibe um okay. and I'll I'll ping you over I think I think that would really work and I love that tune. All right. A lot of people over the years have, have, have you know tried to nudge me into covering that Greg Lake track and I've, I've always resisted it and you know including every time I think it's always been me. Well, everybody and you know Marillion every every time we come to do a Christmas track for the fans you know somebody or everybody says about that Greg Lake tune and I go no 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 um <laughs> it'll happen eventually I dare say. right right okay you do it as a crooncast now won't you <laughs> in a kind of Les Dawson style <laughs> yeah so um so sales going well everything's fine prep's going well um for those of you who haven't picked up on it there's a Facebook group there's a Facebook group that's going to go live on the night to allow you to feedback and ask questions. But you can join it already. It's a private group at the moment, so you have to be allowed in. Um, so you've got to get past Lucy. Um, but um, See, I'll, I'll put the link on the notes. I know nothing about this. She probably thinks I won't understand it, even if she tells me and I won't remember, which is true. So that's there's, there's a reason she hasn't told you, but yeah. I'm not telling you what that reason is. Um, <laughs> um, so I'll put the link on on the notes. I'll bang the link on the notes. Um, and if you haven't already joined the group in prep, join the group. Uh, there's there's quite a bit of bands going on. There's quite a lot of song recommendations going on. Okay. There's an equal backlash of people saying don't play anything Christmassy at all. But right. you know, it's all good natured. I thought you were going to say don't play anything at all. <laughs> That may well feed through on the night. That would make rehearsals a bit, a bit simpler for me. I'll just <laughs> get drunk, talk rubbish for two hours, go home. So last bit, before we before we pack up and go home for, for 34, um, I will get back to the diary. Um, mm. And the one thing that struck me through the diary, again, it's just a little thing, and it's almost a throwaway line, but you're on one of your journeys. You come up with the whole idea for the personas and the, you know, the clothing for, you know, what now became the legendary Brave Dates. That all really started with the dilemma of um, John Helmer had sent a lyric, which I kind of added to and, got, you know, again, all the scissors out and um, hacked about a bit, but um, hard as love. I hear you've been looking out to hunt me down and all of that. Um, and so I I kind of when I got when I got my teeth stuck into that song, uh, when we were writing Brave, I was mindful all the time that I was that I was working on the lyrics that it was a girl. It was a girl, it was an angry girl uh, singing those words. And once we'd made the record and the record had gone out, it occurred to me that if I went on stage as a male person and sang those words, they mean something else entirely. They're, 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 they're a lot nastier. They're not very nice at all. Um, you know, they're much more... You know, the predatory aspect of them is somewhat disturbing if it's, if it's a guy. So I thought, how am I going to make it crystal clear that... that that this is a female, bearing in mind that I'm not one. Uh, I'm going to have to dress up. Oh, all right, yeah, up for that, you know. Um, 
And uh, I was thinking about the hollow man. I was thinking about all this. And then, then it was in the back of that car and I thought, do you know what? What I could do is I could have a wig that is my hair. And immediately before the tour, I will shave my head. Um, and I will put, I will put, I will go on stage at the beginning of the show with a wig that is that is cut in in the style of my hair, so nobody will no, notice or imagine that it's a wig. And then, for hard as love, I'll go off stage and I'll come back on. I'll have removed that and I'll put a, I'll put a big, you know, a girl's wig or maybe in pigtails or something, and come out and inhabit the persona of a female for that song. And when I sit down after it to play The Hollow Man, I will tear it off and I'll have either no hair at all or I'll just have like a little crew cut. And th- and everybody, that will blow everybody's mind. And um, I thought that would be great. And why didn't I do it? Um, there was a reason. I got the wigs made. So, I mean, I don't know where they went. I've still got them somewhere in a fancy dress. Oh, hang dress. on, hang on. Live stream. <laughs> you need to have those wigs for the live stream. <laughs> I don't know if I've still got them. They might be in the a dressing up bag in a distant cupboard or, or they might have creatures nesting in them by now. It was a very long time ago. But I had all the wigs made. I went to a hairdresser's and I had the wigs cut into the various styles and I was going to do it. And then at the last minute, for some reason, we didn't do it, and I can't remember why. There was something impractical about it, and we knocked it on the head. Um, so that was the beginning of the of, of the wig idea. <laughs> the wig idea. And the, it went from there. It went from that, that um, knowledge that I'd have to be female for hard as love, um... And I think the fact that I'd had so many conversations with Dave Megan about sexual abuse in 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 the clergy, because Dave went to Dave was an Irish Catholic, um, and the whole process of of growing up in Dublin as an Irish Catholic had traumatised him on such a deep level that whenever we had long chats, you know, it wasn't long before we drifted around to priests abusing boys and uh, he'd been at one of those so-called Christian Brothers schools Mm. um, which were fairly famous for for being really quite brutal you know he said they used used to beat you up all the time you know on a whim Uh, and they were so-called men of the cloth you know they were they were monks and whatnot so david had his own taste of that dark side of of um the the his you know irish irish um roman catholic um institutionalized nastiness you know i'm not saying all priests are nasty at all but there was there was a lot of there was a bad history, particularly well, all over the world, I guess, but particularly in Ireland. Um, and, and David tasted that firsthand, and so that that sort of fed into the idea of me walking on dressed as a priest as well, to sing "Living with the Big Lion" and, and to do brave like that, because mm. there seems something just so dark and spiritual about brave that it felt right somehow to do it in a cassock. I don't know why. Look, it was a, a communion. Mm. Um, you know, nothing to do with abuse or anything, just a, co- just a communion with, with something something beyond the physical. Um, so that's kind of where the whole... The, 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 the development in my adult head between, you know coming on you know inhabiting this priestly persona that at some point in the show would 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 become a a kind of angry woman and then at some other point would become a game show host Mm. um i suppose if you're not if you'd done the wigs that uh, you know the way you you did your hair in the pigtails and you put on the you know the, the makeup and what have you that was very much a transformative 
part of the event, wasn't it? I mean, mm. that that then became part of the theatre, um, you know, um, and, and was and was very was very powerful because it happened in front of your face. Yeah. Um, so maybe if it had gone the original, maybe maybe you know that wouldn't have worked in quite the same way because I'd have had to walk off and come on, yeah, yeah dressed yeah. up. Whereas, yeah, in the end, in the end, I thought it 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 would be um, more interesting. because yeah. you want you underline the transformation in front of people. Yeah, yeah, and I think that I, I do think that worked really. It almost I don't want to mix these two things up but it's that almost that Jekyll and Hyde moment isn't it because because you're going through that that process yeah um which I think really really worked so that came about that started to come about on that journey then yeah I think that it started with the I'd, I'd been grappling all along quietly with this dilemma about the female persona and how how to make that really clear um and I think it was on that journey I thought, oh, what about wigs, you know? And that 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 then took me on that sort of journey, um, where 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 the priestly robes came in. I'm not, I can't quite remember mm. where, when they were added in my mind. Probably saw them in a shop window. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, to be fair, you could have bought another rug. So I suppose if it's if it, you know, a cassock for a rug. Um, I think what's going to be nice, and we'll just as we start to wrap this up, I think what's going to be nice because we've got all the brave live performances to go, and that's going to feature heavily in part of the diary. And you do tend to write quite a lot while you're on the road as well. We can come back to these little elements. So as much as it, you know, the, the we we covered brave a little bit last week in terms of the the recording side of it and the different parts that went together. We're going to keep flitting back over the course of this year, which I think is going to be really nice because that's a, that's a, you know, that's a story I'd never heard. The wig story I'd never heard. Um, and, I, and if you don't talk about it in any greater depth in the diary, then I suppose hardly anybody else has heard it either. I did that whole tour in the end in pain because um, I'd kind of got this nerve trapped in my neck that was sending pain barreling down my left arm. And I did the whole tour in various degrees of agony from this, this um, what I thought was a ricked neck um, or, or a problem with my left arm. And I kept going having acupuncture and God knows what to try and cope with it. And then um, years later, when we um, re-performed Brave, I found the pain came back and I realised that what it was, it was the two guys that mugged me during the end of Hardest Love. They wrapped their arms around me and pulled me and I fought them. And because I yeah. was, you know, streaming adrenaline in large quantities by that point in the show, I was pulling far too hard and I, and I was damaging myself nightly and, and pulling all the muscles in my shoulders. Um, it just hadn't, strangely, just hadn't occurred to me that being mugged nightly might, might result in some kind of pain. <laughs> so that's or, another, that was another interesting thing. <laughs> or any form of long-term mental trauma, um, um, which is becoming ever-evident as we record these episodes. Right, uh, we'll call it a day for that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll see you. I'll see, well, actually, I'll see you again this week because we've got a and a to record, haven't we? So we need to do that at some point this week. Lovely. Well, I look so forward we'll, to that. We'll, we'll find some time for Q&A. So Purple's the Q&A on its way and everybody else take care and I'll, I'll see you next time. Cheerio, Anthony. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Yes, you too. Thank you very much, Simon Adlington. I'm glad you came along. Thanks, Andy Myers and Cameron Packer who I think went away and came back. Thanks, Sharon Madison. Ain't it great to be purple? That's all for this week. Short and sweet. 
short and sweet Bit like me Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.